1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Renee. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we delve into your word, that you confront us where we need to be confronted. You comfort us where we need to be comforted. I pray that the words that I speak, which are dross, will fall away, and the words that I speak, which are from you, will rest on your people's hearts. Just ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you uh, had grown up uh, in the time of around 300 AD, you would have grown up in a time when it was difficult to be a Christian. You would have, you know, it was tough. It was not cool. It was not popular. There was a time when you were the communist to MacArthur. You were the Jew to Hitler. You were the scapegoat of the society. You were the refugee or the immigrant who could be blamed for all the ills that people faced. And you were persecuted because of that. And because of that, the church worked hard to prepare people to be Christians. The process of becoming a Christian began with an examine. You came before the church and you said, I have decided to follow Christ. I am born again. And they would do an examine. They would spend some time calling witnesses and they would ask about the conversion and they would want to know what it meant to you to be born again in that very early first conversion moment. And then there would be a three-year catechism period where they would take you through training. They would instill in you the doctrines of the church. They would make sure you understood the scriptures well, that you embedded them in your heart. And at the end of that three-year period, leading up to Easter week, there'd be another period of examine where they would look back over that three years and they'd say, has the encounter with the scripture really changed your heart? Are you really reflecting what you've learned? Is this just head knowledge or is there heart knowledge as well? Are you prepared to live as a Christian? And if they decided at the end of that second examine that you were, you were baptized on Easter Sunday. Now, 300 years, or 50 years later, in 350 AD, Christianity had become cool. Constantine had become the emperor. He had made Christianity the religion of the day. And often people became Christians because 
it was to please their family or because they wanted to marry another Christian or they wanted to succeed politically. Can you imagine that? And what happened, of course, at that point was that three-year catechism seemed like a, a lot of work. It's one thing to become a Christian. No big deal. I can walk in, born again, I'm a Christian. But then the, that three-year catechism period often turned into 20 years or 30 years or never even got to its conclusion. In fact, if you're familiar with Augustine and his book of Confessions, you know that he went through that first exam as a young boy, didn't get serious about his faith, and finally finished that catechism process at 33 years old. And that was common. And so the church was, had a big problem. All these people coming in for political or family or business reasons because it was cool, it was the culture to become Christian, but never really executing on that faith. And so after another 50 years, by about 400 AD, the church worked out, we can't do this three-year catechism thing. It just doesn't work for us anymore. Let's make this period of 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday. And we'll spend that time as a long period of examine. We'll encourage people and instruct people. And then that Passion Week we will use as that final examine. And then we will baptize them on Easter Sunday into the faith. Now, 2,000 years has gone. And I think we've even watered Lent or that catechism process down even further. It's been reduced to not eating chocolate or perhaps avoiding fish on Fridays. And then we're saying in this series, as we do in other series, let's use this time as examine. Let's really dig into it and let's look at this very real connection in this series, which we're calling Washed, between baptism and Easter Sunday, between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which happened on Easter Sunday, and our movement through faith as symbolized by that baptism sacrament. And today we're going to look at one particular area from this passage in 1 Peter. We're going to look at the connection be between baptism and suffering, judgment, and deliverance. Today, the connection between our baptism, the passion of Christ, and the connection of suffering, judgment, and deliverance. Now, you read in this first verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for his sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive to the Spirit. And you see that word also, Christ also suffered, because this passage in Peter is very much about Peter instructing the church at the time, you're going to suffer, and you should expect to suffer, and that's part of what it means to walk as a Christian. Now, for us, I think, in the context that we find ourselves, when we see a religion which says, look, it's about suffering, we say, what's the point? I don't want to do that. I want to do everything I can to avoid suffering. I don't want to associate or be connected with any religion that has anything to do with suffering, particularly at its core, at its center here, as Peter is saying, why would I want to have anything to do with suffering? Now, we as a people, as a culture, as a group of people in Danvers, we do a pretty good job of waiting rather than drowning in suffering. We have ways of avoiding suffering. The first thing we do, and I think this is partly healthy, is we say, 
you know, my suffering isn't as bad as that other person's. And there's truth to that, right? There is a healthy perspective that can be gathered by saying, you know what, I am not stuck in a refugee uh, prison. I am not in the middle of a war zone. I am not in some sort of de debilitating hunger crisis. I am not suffering like other people are suffering. And that first piece of that, that perspective can be helpful. But when we don't take the ways we do suffer to God, what we're really saying is either our suffering isn't important or probably what we're really saying is, you know what, God has got other people to listen to. He doesn't really need to listen to me. He doesn't have the capacity to listen to me. It's a small God. And my suffering is not consequential to him. My, my suffering isn't real. I, don't, I, I miss out on the intimacy and the connectedness and the, the lament and the acknowledgement that everything is not okay in my own life. And I avoid that by rationalizing. The other way I do this is more practically by making myself exist in a homogenous community that doesn't suffer. I have access to education, I have access to wealth, I have access to healthcare, I'm a resourced person. And I find that I collect myself, uh, I, I create a community around me which looks just like me. I look out at you guys and what do I see? I see resourced people, people with access to healthcare, people with access, well-educated people, people with financial resource, people who are blessed. And of course, if we make this our community, this our homogenous community, we can avoid suffering. We can certainly wade rather than drown in suffering. And another thing that I find is effective in minimizing or avoiding or downplaying suffering, making suffering and by extension God smaller or less necessary or minimized or marginalized or only needed in certain contexts, is I can pathologize suffering. Uh, if, you, uh, if you can make suffering just some sort of disorder or some, something that we can treat, I don't know if you're aware, but one in 10 people at the age of 20 are diagnosed with depression, but by the time we get to 60, it's one in four. So we have this increase in depression, something's going wrong there. But if we can, if we can and I, by the way, I'm not saying that people who are depressed don't really have issues of depression that need to be addressed. But what I'm saying is, as soon as we just say, take a pill, do some behavior changes, we can manage that I look at my notes in my counseling practice for all the people who are struggling with depression, and I look at my session notes, and very rarely do I say, healed person, depression gone, discharge. Mostly I say, worked on management strategies, worked in ways of mitigating problems, because we've pathologized and pushed it into a corner, and we've made it small, and we can either do some behaviors to minimize it, we can take a tablet and fix it, and whilst those things are not bad things, they are also ways that we can hide our, the suffering that's in our community. But of course, when we, when we rationalize, homogenize, or pathologize suffering, when we make suffering small, we make God small, and we're also making sin small. We are waiting, not drowning in sin. It's only one extension from, I don't suffer like those people, to I'm not sinful like those people. I, we don't have a lot of people who are, we're not expecting to be affected by 
ravaged by sin of gang violence or drug usage or in extreme poverty. Because we have managed to homogenize ourselves, because we can rationalize that we, we aren't quite as bad, that our sin isn't quite as extreme as other people's, because we've homogenized our world, because we can use our blessing to bless ourselves rather than to bless other people, we can hide the fact that we are wretchedly sinful, that we are in an incredibly broken and dysfunctional world. And then we, of course, have that same problem of pathologizing. You see, when we pathologize, when we make a, a pill or a, or a behavior, the solution to the problem, rather than just acknowledging it as being a management a, a process, what we end up doing uh, is saying that sin itself the brokenness that causes that, this trajectory from 10 to 25%, the, the hidden epidemic of mental health, which is just under the surface, isn't, it, it, it isn't caused by the brokenness in the world, by the stress in the world, by the trauma in the world, by the ravages of war and poverty and economic distress in the world, by the dysfunction in families in the world. And so we find ourselves here making God small and making sin small and the consequences of sin small by rationalizing, homogenizing, and pathologizing it. The eyes have it, and they have declared sin and suffering small and inconsequential in our faith. But when we scratch just below the surface. When we're intellectually honest with ourselves, we know that is not true. And there are people in here who have suffered terribly. And those are the ones that are most empathetic to the suffering outside of this rationalized, homogenized, pathologized view. And so that was certainly the case of the audience that Peter was writing to. You see, they were quite likely to end up as lion feed or firewood. They were quite likely they certainly knew people who were fed to the lions and burned at the stake because of their faith. And they are told here, you should expect to suffer. Suffering is part of the Christian walk. And, and let me tell you why suffering is at the core of that. Let's look to Christ. You read verse 18 there. That's a very powerful. For Christ also suffered. This is Peter's argument for why you should expect to suffer. For Christ also suffered once, and I guess the Jews who heard that were excited, because they were so used to finding that sacrificial lamb again and again and again, week after week after week, that here it is, the Lamb of God sacrificed once. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteousness. And isn't it interesting? We homogenize... We set ourselves apart, we avoid, and here's the one who could most set themselves apart. The righteous entered into the world of the unrighteous, the one that truly could claim to be set apart and was set apart, entered into, immersed himself in our suffering to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. So important, right? He, he died in the flesh, but his spirit went straight to be with Christ, with, with, with the Father in heaven. And that's exactly what we see when we look at the passage in, uh, in Luke 23, 40 to 46 on the cross, where one thief, 
thief says, what's going on? Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, you would save us. Save yourself and save us. And the other, cross, the other thief looks at him and says, do you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Righteous, but unrighteous. And then a little bit later in the same passage, Jesus uh, uh, is just about to pass and he says in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. His spirit with the Father, his spirit lives, the flesh is dead. And that is our connection, that is our hope. His body is resurrected three days later. His spirit goes to be with the Father. When we die, our spirit goes to be with the Father. And we wait until the second coming for the resurrection and the uniting of our spirit with our, with our new bodies and the new heavens and the new earths. But this spirit that lives, that goes to be with the Father, that was with the, the thief on the cross who understood who Jesus was, this resurrection of spirit and then later connection with the resurrection of body is the hope that we have to finally address the suffering and the sin that is real. And so when people say, why would I want to deal with a religion that deals with suffering, that says sin is real, is because I want to deal with a religion that deals with reality, that looks the world in, in the way it is and, and doesn't pretend, it doesn't minimize it, it doesn't say you can mindfully transcend this but it truly engages with the reality. Now, mindfulness and transcendence, they're all part of the faith. But if we can't look at the world and say, suffering is real and sin is real, then we are going to minimize the need and the reality for the cross and the resurrection. So the first thing that we see here is that suffering is very much part of the Christian faith and very much part of the experience of Christ as he came to the cross. Second thing we look here is judgment. And this passage, of course, is particularly confusing when we read it. So let me read it to you. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while he built the ark. What on earth is he talking about here? Well, I'll give you the three options that theologians have debated over through the, etern uh, the eternal time that the scripture has existed. The first option uh, is this idea that Jesus' is going, Jesus' spirit is going down into hell and he's finding those people that were around at the same time of Noah and going to them and taunting them a little bit and saying, see, I did it. I made it. <laughs> the second option is uh, probably considered more credible in reform circles, although they're all debated, is the idea that they're talking about the spirit of Christ that works through all the prophets, and the prophet here was Noah, and it was Noah who spoke long ago to all of those people with the, with the spirit of Christ in him. And the third option is that this is Christ speaking to the fallen angels, to the army of Satan, in a sense. And, and saying to them, it is finished, it is done. The battle is over, it is won. And you want to know, of course, which one I think is the right answer. And of course, 
I think my opinion should equally be held up with all those great theologians, and I should be able to decide that. So I'm going to quote from a philosopher who I think has the right answer here. Uh, I don't know, it's an anonymous philosopher, and this is how his philosophy goes. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you do while you were there? I chased a little mouse under the chair. So what am I saying here? What I'm saying here is, if you want to spend your time chasing mice under chairs, if you want to miss the royal sovereign encounter that's in this passage, I embrace the idea of going down this rabbit hole that theologians have not been able to resolve for centuries and miss the whole point of this passage. If you want to do it for fun outside of this uh, sermon, great idea. We are just going to, uh, at this point, say, we're going to go look for the sovereign. We are not going to chase mice under the chair. So what is the encounter with sovereign that we can get out of this passage? By the way, Luther's opinion on this passage was this. Not his answer, but his uh, belief about this passage. This is a wonderful text and more obscure than any other in the New Testament. So let us be content with ambiguity and move on. The point, point and point about this is this imagery of baptism. So let me read on. Eight people came through that uh, we hear in this text. Uh, he, he, uh, pro the proclamation was made to the imprisoned spirits, and then in 20, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, was saved through water. So what's going on there? What is this water all about? And we have to understand here how water is used and understood in the Old Testament. See, water has two big implications. It is a picture of chaos and a picture of judgment. And by chaos, we mean unformed. And by judgment, we mean condemning judgment destruction, the power uh, of, of the water being able to destroy and uh, to crush. And we can see those examples. Think of it as a, a tsunami, for example, a huge powerful wave that can come and wipe out in some sort of massive judging act. And we of course see that in the Red Sea, in the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, they have fled Pharaoh's armies the superpower of the day, by the way. The greatest army that lived on the earth at the time was chasing them. And there they were, sitting on the banks of the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. The chaos of the water ahead of them, or the armies of Pharaoh behind them. And God parts the Red Sea and they walk through it. And imagine what it must be like walking through the center of that stationary tsunami, hovering over you, knowing that at any time, that could collapse on top of you and destroy you, could wipe you out, could crush you. You get a picture of that most famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, where he spends the whole sermon describing what it's like to be dangling by a cobweb over this uh, fiery pit with someone with scissors coming near, possibly to cut the cord so that you fall into the pit of judgment. Now, walking through that water, walking through that to the other side, walking next to that tsunami of judgment, 
thinking at any time it could fall on you and crush you must have been terrifying for the Israelites, for the Hebrews. And of course we know that the world's greatest army did not survive that judgment. They were crushed. They were destroyed by that water that came in and, and devoured them and crushed them and destroyed them. So we have this idea through the Old Testament of water being an act of judgment. Clearly that's what it is in Noah's day too. That flood that wiped everyone out but the eight. It's a type of judgment that was executed on the world. But it also has this context of being unformed or incomplete or chaos. And we see that in the very first verses of Genesis. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth were without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, above the unformed, the uncreated, the yet to be, re, re, uh, yet to be made. And that's exactly what happened in the, in the case of Noah. There was a remaking, in a sense, of the earth, a rebirth of the earth. And then when we look at Revelation 21, and I don't know if you've ever read through this and been surprised by this little phrase which is so easy to read over where it reads then I saw a new heaven and a new earth this is the recreated heaven and earth in Revelation 21 for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and this is the line which I think we just brush over and there was no longer any sea there was no water there there was no one formed there was no one created there was no chaos and so we have this picture of water as being judgment, as being chaos, as being unformed. And both of those two things, of course, come out in this idea of Noah's flood. We have both the destruction and the recreation of the world, and we have the judgment and the rebirth of the people of, of God, the faithful people of God. And so now as we're stepping through this text... As we got to, uh, as we're getting to, uh, to uh, verses, the second part of 20 and 21 and 22, we're seeing suffering is real and avoiding it is not true. And there's something about the resurrection, the death and the resurrection, this suffering which, which is entering in and transforming. And there's real judgment in this, in this water. There's real judgment. And then we come to the deliverance. And the, the line is quite, quite interesting in uh, verses 21, which goes on, talking about the flood, this flood water, this flood water which destroyed all but eight people, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. What a strange thing to say. The flood which judges, which destroys, and is also part of rebirth, symbolizes baptism. Well, we get that, but this baptism saves us. Anyone who's been here at any time knows that we don't believe that baptism saves you. We don't believe that baptism saves you. And if you read this sentence, this line on first reading, if we stopped here, this would be quite a disturbing passage. The flood is a symbol of the baptism which now saves you also. But it doesn't stop there, and Peter does nuance, so then he does go on, and he begins by saying, not the root removal of dirt, but the pledge of clear conscience towards God. Now, 
at least I'm starting to feel a little better about that. It's not actually the water which saves me. It's something about a pledge of a clear conscience. But we just went back here. I am a rationalizing, homogenizing, pathologizing sinful mess. I'm not even going to finish this sermon without sinning. I'm not even going to finish this sentence without having sin corrupt me. How am I possibly going to make any pledge of a clear conscience towards God? So it's not the removal of, of dirt, it's some pledge of clear conscience. And that word pledge, by the way, is the language of contract. It's the language of covenant. But it's not, as we read on again, as Peter unpacks it a little bit more for us, it is not my pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It's the salvation that comes by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we suddenly say, oh, the clear conscience isn't done by my work. It's done by Christ's work on the cross. You see, when the flood came, there was no ark for him. The flood swallowed him up. He died. When the Red Sea parted, it didn't stay parted for him. The tsunami crushed him. And he was resurrected from that. So when we look for our ark, when we look for the parting of the seas, we're not looking at our baptism to save us. We're looking for Christ as the ark, Christ for the parting of the waters, Christ for our way through the judgment waters of the flood or the Red Sea, the judgment waters of our sin, which are chaotic and turbulent, which destroy and which crush us, the tsunami of judgment which rightfully should fall upon us. We see this actually in Luke 12, 49 to 50, where if you remember back when we actually looked at the baptism of Jesus, we looked at this verse then as well because Jesus, when he's explaining why he should be baptized to John, is saying, no, we need to do this because whether you realize it or not, I do need to be baptized, but not the sort of baptism that you had. I'm going to go to the cross and I am going to be crushed under the weight of sin, not as an unrighteous person, but as a righteous person. And before I can come and judge in that tsunami, before I can come and make the world right and rid it of evil and sin, I need to make room for my people. I have to make an ark. I have to make a pathway through the waters of judgment. And the only way I can do that is to go to the cross. And that's what he says here in Luke 12, 49 to 50. I have come to bring fire on the earth. I have come to judge, make no mistake. I have come to purify. I have come to get rid of evil. I have come to crush the things which bring pain and suffering. I have come to defeat death. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo first. I have to make a way through the water. I have to build an ark for my people before I can bring judgment. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. So we see it then in our own baptism. We see the connection to Christ's baptism, not the one with John the Baptist, but the one on the Passion Week where he died in the flesh and was resurrected three days later. Now, we do not live 
in 300 AD or 350 AD or 400 AD. We live in a time, as I said, where Lent sometimes doesn't even get acknowledged. But where is no, there is no examine one, there is no catechism, there's no examine two. But I hope we will spend this time in Lent in a period of examine, that we will spend our time looking at our covenant connection through baptism to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we began that process. Today we dug into this idea that suffering and judgment and deliverance are very much part of the resurrection and very, very much connected to that symbolically through our own baptism. So when we think about baptism, we need to think of passing through the water as someone making space in that judgment so that we are not crushed by that tsunami of judgment. That person that was baptized himself on the cross and, and raised out of that for us, who made a way for us. So I hope you will join us on this journey to the cross as we explore all the facets of baptism that express the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Passion Week. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we, we thank you for this uh, obscure and yet rich text. We thank you that there is a sovereign connection to you in it. We thank you that we see someone willing not just to part the seas, but to be crushed by the sea. Willing not just to prepare an ark, but to be crushed by the flood. Father, we thank you that we see a future without the chaos, without the unformed, without the brokenness, without the suffering. But Father, in your death and your resurrection, as we exist in this world before the new heaven and the new earth, help us to avoid the trappings of rationalizing, of homogenizing, of pathologizing. Help us to see you as big, sin as big, but your death and resurrection as bigger. The God that crushed the armies, the God that crushes evil. Help us to walk with you, to bear our cross because of our baptism, into your baptism on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.